Hello and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we are back after a bit of a hiatus. We're dealing with uh, BLS or big life stuff. Um, We are back to discuss one of the strangest major motion picture releases of this year, if not the last several years. And that is the recently released James Wan directed, James Wan written along with his wife, Ingrid Bisu, I believe. Um, Malignant. Yes. Yes. Soak in, soak in the title. Malignant. Um, one thing I will give James Wan, and we're going to talk probably about James Wan's entire career uh, with this episode, or little pieces of it at least, as we discuss this incredibly weird entry into that pantheon. Uh, James Wan and and Lee Winnell, his his oft writing partner, who I have no doubt did some kind of uncredited pass on the script. It feels like he did uh, at least a little one. Uh, he's good at titles. Good at titles. Insidious. The yeah. Conjuring. Right? Malignant. He, he made uh, a word web and he found a lot right. of good words. That's right. He's got his rhyming dictionary, you know, right next to you. Like, oh, what's this word going to go with? Oh, this <laughs> one. Um, it's, it's a great title. And um, this particular film is one. Um, I, I did some traveling for work recently and, uh, I, I threw this on my laptop knowing that I was going to have time to kill at the airport since I was flying internationally and who boy, Hey, what a film to watch in an airport. Let me give you that one. <laughs> I'll just start there. Uh, sitting in a seat, some of the things that happened in this movie, I'm like looking over my shoulder being like, nobody's watching this, right? Cause nobody can think see I'm what I'm of, doing right now. <laughs> think I'm some kind of psychopath, you know? Um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, I had my, my, you know, surround sound headphones on, you know, I, I had a good experience on my, my lovely laptop screen. And, you know, I don't feel like I was, I was, the film was less by consuming it that way. I've since, since watched it in, in the more traditional, you know, home viewing scenario and context. But um, this, this movie took me totally by surprise. I went in absolutely blind. I didn't know anything about it. Which, um, you know, I kind of prefer when it comes to, you know, your horror affair. I'd rather not know very much. And I and Juan has surprised me in the past. He did it with Insidious. I kind of just walked into that being like, well, that was an interesting trailer. I want to see what happens. Loved the Insidious series. And I'm going to be super honest. I love all the Insidious movies, even the bad ones. Yeah. Like even the la- the later ones, which, you know, the the fourth one was directed by Lee Winnell and, and he had always been sort of intricately tied to that one, both act as an actor and as a writer. And, but I, I love them all. They're all fantastic. And um, well, I guess I can't say fantastic, but I, I love them all. I think they're really good. Even the last key is a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I, I was watching, you know, those movies got me in. The Conjuring did the same thing. I was like, ah, oh, you know, new James Wan movie. It's, you know, based on the Warrens who were horrible shysters, but whatever. And I go see it and I'm like, damn, that was really good. I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, I've been disappointed by everything else The Conjuring has done. But that first Conjuring movie, I think, is, is really solid. And the second one a little bit. But um, yeah, man, Malignant. Uh, we're going to get into it because this movie, 
defies discussion without spoilers. Like you really can't yeah. get much. You can't get deep into it without getting deep into it. Um, so we're going to give our, our initial impressions, I guess, and, and talk a little bit about the scenario. Um, so I, I guess your, your thoughts, initial thoughts on it's good Malignant. to see body horror being done at all. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I am a big, big fan, as you are as well, of course, of Stuart Gordon body horror. And yep. I love David Cronenberg From just beyond, as much as anyone else. Um, um, which I guess that's another one. Have you watched Possessor yet? I Matt have Cronenberg's, not. Cronenberg's is, kid. I, I have that one actually ready to watch and I yeah bump that one up on the list because he's daddy's got big shoes to fill mm. but our, our our baby cronenberg's gonna try and and possessors getting there very very much so it's it's early cronenberg it's the more raw stuff you know it's not the more i mean it's Cronenberg's the stuff never, that really grosses me out yes yeah i mean even even kind of pre-scanners cronenberg you know like the he made that one in the hotel where everybody gets infected by worms. Yeah. It was like one of his early Canadian ones. <laughs> Just so, oh, you know, like, eh. um, you know, it's not existence Cronenberg. And, and my, my <laughs> real question is why do I like this shit in the first place? I'm really like, I've been trying to analyze, like, why do I enjoy mm. this stuff? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I have no idea. I usually hate gross things. I'm, sure. I'm, I am, I'm like a sympathetic puker. I have a really sensitive gag reflex. Like if I see something nasty, I'm going to react to it really viscerally. But yet I love stuff like this. Because something mm -hmm. about body horror especially helped me as a very young person learn that, learn what movie magic is. And that movies are fake. Um, you know, it's it's just so much easier to to embrace that movies are over the top and ridiculous. None of this is really happening when the film sort of delights in the fact that none of this is really happening. Um, sure. So that's that's my initial impression is that I just like to see this genre being given a bit more of a stage. Very much so. And Juan at this point, uh, no matter how you feel about James Wan, but I, I get the impression from what I'm you know, what you see in social media and then just sort of the general consensus, a lot of people kind of pull for James Wan. They they like him. Um, and it, honestly, if you look at the movements of, I guess, what we could call mainstream horror in the 2000s, he's been a part of, or in some cases, totally behind several of the major movements that brought horror back to the forefront of cinema discussion. Um, horror never went away. Like, I... I I do not agree with the premise that horror has died and then been resurged. I, I think certain genres of horror sort of flow and ebb. And right now we're in a big flow where a lot of the different genres are kind of back and being blended and experimented with, you know, sort of what we saw with science fiction happening sort of, you know, post matrix, a lot of people just try and stuff just, Oh, let's well, mix it, this up. Let's try these things. And it and has a lot to do that point. It has a lot to do with the 20 and 40 year cycle where mm -hmm. you know, the things oh, that were popular, popular 20 years ago are going to be popular now. And, you know, only with certain types of people. And it's, it's time for that eighties, you know, kind of extreme, like Italian horror. Um, those mm -hmm. things are having and a bit a of a renaissance of, again. Yeah. And this is this film gets 
has gotten a lot of giallo horror nods. Oh, um, yeah. Which you can I tell think, what he watched before he sat down to write right. this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't really see that in terms of its content. I mean, it's trying to be weird. What's giallo horror is, is yeah. weird for the sake of being weird. And this has certainly got some of that. I mean, but apart from just the lighting in several circumstances where he's you know using the bright, harsh neons and things like that, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that this is giallo horror. This is maybe... James Wan's take on giallo horror. I could probably go that far. Inspired. Um, it's it's inspired, exactly. It's it's tonally and and situationally inspired by giallo horror, but this is not a giallo horror movie. Right. This is a slasher movie. Right. This is this is a I mean Wan is is one who when he sits down to create one of these things and and Lee Winnell his again his screenwriting partner they've they're very much in sync on this they both do the same thing Juan wants to build things that extend beyond he seems to me obsessed you know just like James Cameron has been obsessed with telling the ideal love story since Terminator I think James Wan is obsessed with creating iconic slasher villains right like I, I just in his mind that's what he does i want to create an iconic i guess the loose term in in film would be silhouette right i want to create the michael myers silhouette the thing that will be remembered and if you look at all of his movies they all have these elements the one that doesn't at least to an extent is the conjuring the conjuring has no recognizable villain it's just a witch right which makes me think that that script was much more restrained and right? you, much more held to quote unquote reality. And you could argue that, that it, it downplayed the villain in order to uplift the heroes because it's really about the Warrens. Right. It's about the Warrens. It's a movie about their relationship. And, and that's why I love it is because I think, I mean, anytime you hang something on Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga to, to be great. Oh, it's a winner. You're going to win, right? There's very few situations where that's going to go wrong. Everybody loves in, to see hot people in love. <laughs> they do. And Patrick Wilson qualifies. Um, but by the time Conjuring 2 comes around, now Juan's, nay I say, obsession with creating the crooked man, the nun, right? Like that kind of thing. And then those flare out into their various universes, which expand his producer credits and I'm sure his bank account. And and he gets those things. And so in Insidious, you know, you had the red faced demon and then, you know, eventually some of the other villains, the, the, you know, the quote unquote woman in the veil, you know, all that stuff. But he he seems particularly obsessed now with his, with his horror output, at least with creating these iconic villains um, or characters. Because here's the thing, Malignant, while this is the film that, that we got here and it's, it's very unique, we'll talk about it, this idea began as a comic book in 2014, after the year of our Lord 2013, which is the year of our Lord in which James Wan blew the fuck up because he released The Conjuring and Insidious 2 in like a six month period and both of them were like massive successes. Um, that's when the studios came calling and said, Oh, Hey, James Wan, we see you made quite a bit of money on, uh, the conjuring specifically, but insidious Two did just fine too. Um, would you like to, to do big things like a fast and furious movie? We've got one of those in development. 
uh, was it Justin Lin doesn't seem interested in doing it. Would you, you know, would you like this bone that we are going to throw to you? And he took it and he knocked it out of the park and he made a billion and a half dollars for universal and universal said, oh, thank you very much, sir. What would you like to do next? And he said, Oh, I don't know. What do you guys think? And they said, well, why don't you make more little horror movies? These conjuring things are doing well. You can make a couple of those. And then he got pulled into the, the Warner brothers machine for Aquaman. But in 2014, James Wan, there was a story released that he was working with Boom Studios, uh, who is a, a studio basically founded to funnel film ideas into a complete medium so that you could then use them as pitch documents. That's pretty much what Boom has been from the start. Um, he was working on an idea simply called The Malignant Man. And it is the same core concept as this film. Except he's a superhero, not a villain. And it didn't really go anywhere, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, I could see Um, why. But the core concept is basically the same. Although the lead character is male, not female in that story. So some interesting things there. But so this is an idea that's been hanging around his head for a while. And either he didn't know how to execute it or didn't have the time to execute it because he's been busy. For the last you know seven or eight years, not much free time to go make a little project of his own. But he's obviously had it kicking around, and he's got a lot of faith in it. But I think it comes back to this idea that he wants to build. And if you look at the history of horror, the franchises that have made their mark and stay forever, it's because of these you know iconic villains, right? I mean, Michael Myers, Freddy, Jason, Ghostface, right? Like these are the the ones that exist in the public consciousness, and he'd already done it once before with Jigsaw, right? Jigsaw is now one of those characters in the pantheon of horror, well, anti heroes, I guess, if you want to be forgiving about that character's role in those films. But he's 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 in that mode here, and he's in that mode in just a way that we've never seen him in before, where. I really feel like there was no one on this film, literally no one saying, and I'm going to use an Australian accent here saying, James, is that a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Should we be doing this? Um, And in some cases, the answer should have definitely been no hard pass, (laughs) Um, but they didn't. And here we are. Uh, And, and that's okay because We've got something here. I'm I like I I like this film a lot simply because it's a film that shouldn't exist. And I love it when we get things that shouldn't exist, right? It's, it's the same love that I have for the 1984 David Lynch version of Dude. Yeah. This is a film that should never have happened, right? Someone did. in this process should have made it stop, but they didn't. And now we have it and it's weird and it's terrible, but it's also beautiful. And so, so compelling to watch Um, because it's flawed, because it's a thing that shouldn't have happened. And this is kind of in that same realm for me. Uh, It is not good there. You will if you are not like a a, and I don't want to like no true Scotsman myself here. But if you're not like a huge horror fan that just kind of loves what horror films are capable of doing, I think you'll hate this like actively. And even if you are a huge horror fan. There will probably be things in this that piss you off 
Oh, because we're going to get to the things that pissed they're me off. <laughs> so aggressively strange and so oddly done. Intensely stupid. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a bit of that too. Uh, I mean, and uh, I, I fully expect that when I sit down to watch a horror movie and when I sit down to right, watch a James Wan movie, you know, mm -hmm. I always prepare myself for a little bit of stupid because I really liked the first Saw, but that movie was dumb. That's what made it great. Is sure. that it was a little yeah, was stupid. Goofy. I think if horror movies don't embrace that horror itself is a little stupid, then you're almost always in for a bad time. I think that uh, that's where a lot of horror franchises go wrong is they just kind of forget that we're supposed to be having fun. Yeah, they get overly serious. Too big for their britches, as our grandma might have said. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I think there's room for that. I mean, there's room for Ari Aster in the horror genre, right? Which is, is horror that takes itself just deadly serious at all turns. And if you maintain that tone, like, good for you, man. Bully. Um, but the vast majority of horror, and again, I come back to this idea of the popular horror, the horror that people, you know, get together and watch on a Thursday night with their friends over some beers, Right that kind of horror has this little bit of tongue in cheek, this little bit of like wink, wink. This is a bit dumb, right? Like it's, it's, this is silly. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, I've been watching a lot of stuff on John Carpenter here recently, um, for some future podcasts, but also just because I love reading and, and, you know, engaging in discussion about John Carpenter. That's one of the things that I think his movies do really well most of the time. Not always. Big Trouble in Little China is the obvious example of, of the perfect tonal balance. It's a bit more of a straight comedy than most of his other work, but even things like They Live, which has like a sort of horror thriller component, um, In the Mouth of Madness, which, you know, has silly moments, but is mostly serious. It, that tongue-in-cheek gives you breathing room just a little bit to disengage from the reality of what you're seeing, which is important, but it also gives you this willingness to engage, yeah. right? A willingness to stay engaged in something that why would we, you know, it's, it's the old, old question. Why do we do this to ourselves? Right. Why do we scare ourselves? Why would we willingly make that decision? And a lot of people don't. Right. But those who do what keeps bringing you back in a lot of ways, it's because of that sort of like silly, fun you know component um and and this this has that for sure yeah <laughs> um but all of Juan's stuff does which is why i think there are a lot of people in horror who root for him because it's it's hard to pull off and wand Juan is at the very least and and i'm sure we could debate this as we go through the film and i, I have no doubt we will Juan is a an incredible craftsman of oh course. yeah, I will show up for his movies for the for the rest of his career the same way that I show up for John Carpenter no matter what he does. If mm -hmm. it's just him with a synthesizer in his house, I show up for that. Boom, boom. If it's if boom, it's boom. him making the ward, I'm going to show up for that. Sure. Um, I yeah. I don't really particularly he's one of those filmmakers that I don't particularly care what he's trying. I will still watch it, and I think James Wan is there. I, I'll watch whatever I so. he tries. I mean, I don't think there's anyone working today who is as technically aware of how to do something like architect a jump scare. 
like he's he's just got it down right for him it's it's like breathing he just knows exactly how to build those rhythms build those tensions um i was re-watching insidious after i realized we were going to do an episode for this just to kind of recontextualize that series and you know the when they move to the new house and and rose Byrne is at home by herself and she's she sees the you know little 30s kid for the first time in the house and and he's mixing all of these different you know sort of horror styles you know we see the kid in the background in a flash and then she turns and he's gone and then we we move through the house and he's over here and then there's a cabinet that's open and we're going to open that cabinet like he's deftly blending i mean shots that if you go back to the early days of horror, you know, like most of Michael Myers in the original Halloween is just him in the background. A character looks that direction and he's gone, right? Like that's, that's like 75% of what Michael Myers does in the original Halloween. But James Wan's doing that. He's doing the quick pan reveals from, you know, something like, I, um, I the mirror work in, in Friday the 13th. And he just blends it all together. Deftly and capably. And it's awesome. I really love his his slow focus on empty space, suggesting that something is going to happen and then Mm -hmm. something doesn't happen. That's my favorite. Actually, one of my favorite moments in in his films would be Insidious 2 when uh, the 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 two guys go to. to her Sparks house into the red room. His name is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, all of the stuff in the red room of the, the two of them just being absolutely terrified, even though nothing happens down there. It's still just what a, what a great set. What a great, you know, tension builder. I don't know. I insidious two is probably one of my favorites that he's done. Cause I mean, I did really love the first one, but the second one was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like, really the, the entire, you know, trilogy I think is really solid. And, and again, even the last keys good even though it's not one directing um but yeah no he's he's just really capable it's the same tension that you see in the basement scene in zodiac right nothing happens there's no real threat but because of the filmmaking techniques on display the use of lighting camera movement negative space it creates mood it's really good at setting off those internal alarms for the audience you know those the, the moment where you think everything is fine and then it, you know, a switch is flipped and it's like, oh no, no, this isn't fine at all. <laughs> everything's wrong. <laughs> everything's wrong. And if anything, this one, this film suffers a bit because it's less subtle, right? I, I like that the conjuring and insidious sort of forced one into this more restrained box. They eventually break out and, and they do like crazy things, of course, but they're, you know, like, the conjuring is a relatively tame horror film until, you know, the basement sequence at the end. Like it's, and that is mercifully short. I mean, that, that sequence is short. Taken much more. Yeah. And, and I guess that's where embracing Italian horror and body horror is going to affect the, the success of, of James Wan's other movies in Mm -hmm. sort of like comparison, I guess. Because, you know, that restraint is not here. Because it can't. No, no. If he tried to make this movie that way, it would be incredibly boring. I mean, it's already a little bit boring, even being like balls to the wall insane. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it, it reminds me much more of Juan's early output. 
right? Saw, if you go back and watch Saw now, oh my goodness. Like, neon, harsh green lighting mm-hmm. everywhere. Red everywhere. Like, it's, it's overlit. It's overdone. It's overproduced. It was everything this, about the early 2000s in a horror movie. Yes. And, and... And not, you know, not, not for ill, right? It's not an unwatchable mess by any stretch of the imagination, but you can see the excesses and the loves of, of Juan and his associates in that film. It's right? a time it capsule. Their, it I was mean, their big shot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got, you know, who they were when they made that movie. And that's one of the cool things about movies, books, anything that we do creatively is it does kind of seal it that this was who you were at mm-hmm. this particular moment. And it's interesting to see that he's ended up where he is now. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Yeah, I mean, and we've got, you know, authors and writers and directors who've been in the public consciousness for, you know, four or five decades now, where, you know, if you really want to do an in-depth study of that individual, you can traipse through their entire lives in the course of their books. You know, not as a a direct one-to-one, like, oh, he was writing about heroin addiction here. He must have been a heroin addict. But you know, those questions, those things, you can sort of, you know, build a, a kind of picture or profile. And and with one, you know, Saw was all of those loves being smashed together on screen as quickly as he could, because that's all he had time for. But the real film that I feel like parallels Malignant um, is Dead Silence. Mm. So post-Saw, which was an independently produced film based on a student film that he had done with Lee Winnell at school. Dead Silence was his first studio project, and they have very openly talked about what a horrible experience it was. It was terrible. The studio interfered relentlessly. The film was was a you know a shadow of what they attempted to make, Um, and that's because I feel like this film, Malignant, is what Dead Silence would have been if the studio hadn't been constantly holding them back. Because nobody was holding James Wan back for this film. No one. But Dead Silence is this odd little film. Um, I, a lot of people have seen it. I don't want to make it seem like it's, you know, a forgotten gem. It was on it's, Netflix it's not. since the beginning of Netflix streaming. So <laughs> Very you've always so. been able to watch it. <laughs> you can always find copies of Dead Silence. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a small film. Again, this was still co-produced with Lee Winnell, which Malignant, you know, Lee Winnell is, is not here. Uh, I, I gotta think he was at some point in the process. They're still best friends. Um, but Dead Silence is is a movie about a killer puppet lady. Again, yeah. trying to create iconic villains, right? It was a little um, goosebumps. A, <laughs> that's right. Are you worried about killer marionettes? <laughs> well, here you go. I'm sorry. Just and then they picked that cover with the dummy on it, and it's like, wow, it really is goosebumps. <laughs> it's like, hey, do you remember those goosebumps books? Let's do one of those, right? And I do. Um, and 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 obviously other people did too. Uh, but so uh, Dead Silence was a relatively small production. I mean, they didn't spend a ton of money on it. It was more money than one and one L had ever seen before. Um, but it was a huge disaster. And and but from an idea standpoint, it was kind of them unchecked, right? It, it, at least in its initial concept, right? Of this, you know, they were very much trying to do some of their mythology making, you know, telling you know the mythology of this character and all these things. Um, but 
but Malignant is is closer to that that film. And I don't want to talk too much about Dead Silence. I mean, we'll probably talk about it at some point. But you know, it's it's just a very sort of out there film about you know what if you could craft a marionette out of a real person, right? And and do it convincingly enough that no one would know. Uh, and it, again, there's there's extreme gore. There's a ton of uh, gross out humor. We've got the the skeptical cop archetype, which is obviously here you know like all of these pieces are it's just the it's a little chess match that he just keeps kind of rearranging on the board over and over again to see if he can get a mix that's going to work and malignant is just his next attempt you know to do that um and and again perhaps not the best attempt all things considered uh but it is something so i, I guess before we get into spoilers uh would you recommend malignant uh streaming now on hbo max and uh, available in theaters although apparently not many people saw it in that time um well don't go to the theater because it's not safe uh <laughs> yeah. i mean just in general you know it's not time for that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be encouraging that we ain't got time um but I do recommend this movie. I wouldn't recommend buying HBO Max to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I can ever recommend that someone get a streaming service to watch a film. Uh, sure. But I do recommend this movie. I think, like I said, I just don't. I don't get to see this genre play out with a big budget ever. <laughs> I mean, yeah. no other body horror movies have budgets like this. No. No. Um, also, it's not two hours or, or more. It's less than two hours. It is less than two hours. Minus credits, it's about an hour 40. So In it's, praise. It's at that sweet spot, you know, kind of 110. Of a sub two hour film. I, I am enchanted by a movie that can tell a story that is this um, complex <laughs> and still yeah. do it in less than two hours because it feels like nobody wants to do that anymore. Yes, it does seem very much like two hours is now the the minimum for the theater going experience. And uh, and my and, butt already hurts. I can't do that. <laughs> um, I too would recommend this. Uh, definitely, if you were a horror fan, because you're going to see all kinds of things in here, just expertly executed, uh, with a style and flair that that only really someone with the technical acumen and experience of James Wan could. Off. Um, not to say that low budget indie horror can't be surprising. I mean, I'll I'll talk about movies like The Void till the cows come home. Like that that movie is brilliant, and they made it for nothing, and it's just as good as most of the horror being put out by major studios. But but this film in particular is just very, it, it, as you said, it's rare to see something done on this scale with this kind of budget. Um, executed with this much precision and, and skill and, and that's kind of what what Juan is doing here so yeah big recommendation for me uh, I think it's a lot of fun uh, in terms of its its failure um, it's actually got a pretty high Rotten Tomatoes score it's in about 76% which is just shocking to me I, I cannot believe the critics would be behind it if you read through most of the positive reviews though most of them are like this movie is insane and it's completely out of its mind but there's a lot to like, you know, that's pretty <laughs> much the consensus, you know, um, but the audience score is is remarkably low uh, and that is around 50 percent. 
which is surprising because usually horror fans come out in droves to express their admiration for a film that's put together well. But this one doesn't seem to have engendered that kind of love. I have. Uh, And then, of course, in the in the covid era, uh, it has made very little money. I'm sure it will be deemed a success because of HBO streaming, uh, HBO Max. But uh, in terms of box office performance, it uh, it did not do well. Um, well, I, I just, but, uh, I think that, um, this is not what people expected. I think for the audience score, no. this is, you know, a critic, I can see a critic approaching this and maybe not enjoying it, but also saying, eh, you know, if they've seen movies like this before, and you would hope that film sure. critics before they watch this, they will have seen some of its inspirations. Um, but for an audience, I don't know, you know, people. I know people. I've met a few. I don't know a lot of people who would be down with this sort of movie. No. No. Um, yeah, I don't see a lot of popular engagement. Because uh, it's not movies. like Saw. It's not a spectacle. Saw sure. was all about, you know, what are the machines going to do? How are they going to, you know, fuck up these people? What sorts of, of you know, terrible traps are going to be constructed and, and awful, yeah. you know, punishing puzzles? This is this is very much, you know, the narrative horror movie, but it is as violent as a Saw movie. Right. And I, I think in some ways, Juan's previous major horror successes like The Conjuring have worked against him yeah. because those are those are quiet horror films. There are scares in them. Absolutely. But they're not. Generally, they're not gory. There's usually a bit at some point just to increase threat, but nothing like this. And and so, like, if you're trying to market this film, which I, I feel so sorry for the marketing department of Warner Brothers that had to market this movie. Uh, And if you look at the trailers, you can tell they're just kind of like shrug emoji. Like, they don't know. What do we show? What do we tell them about? Like, what do we do? Um, because if you're trying to market this to those Conjuring fans, this is not a movie for them. No. Insidious fans, this is not a movie for them. Although, the again, the last key had some some pretty decent body horror stuff in it. Um, but there, that's the, that is not the audience for this, right? The, this should be uh, marketed to your, like, you know, Tiff After Midnight group right. that's looking for that next big rush, you know? Um, and they kind of do. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, trying to appeal to that group but it's not you know the people that know james wan from his popular films like aquaman they're not going to be on board with this yeah at least at least not by default um i i've kind of made it a and being in the midst of a pandemic and not really being you know going anywhere or doing anything helps but i i've i've really tried to go into some of my recent watchings of things with as little information as possible like i'm not consuming trailers um i'm not trying to like embed myself in the the marketing campaign and watch interviews with people in advance like i'm just kind of walking into them blind and that's what i did with this one i I knew nothing about it that has been my approach to movies for many years now (laughs) where i just good i mean i'm enjoying it you know um, unfortunately I I've got that like twist mentality now, like on the IT crowd where they're like, Oh, there's a twist. And it's like, no, oh, no, I'm watching the movie, trying to figure out the twist instead of just watching <laughs> the movie. Um, and, and I definitely feel a bit of that 
watching stuff like this because I feel like, oh, I'm trying to figure now I've got to figure it out instead of just watching and engaging. But um yeah, so I, I guess we'll move into spoilers. I don't want to, you know, circle the drain too much. This is a recommend uh, if you have access to it or can find a copy of it. Um, Malignant is is worth the hour and 40 minutes or so that it'll take you to get through it. Uh, it's It's got enough going on there that I think it's well worth that time. Uh, but be prepared for some raw nuttiness. Mm-hmm. And and the question that we will delve into and the question we must try to answer is, is James Wan being serious? <laughs> is this a serious film or is this a film where he's being like, man, I hope they find this funny as shit because uh, that is going to determine a lot of how much you enjoy this this film. I yeah. think. Um, all right. So let's let's get into spoilers. Uh, let's let's begin to to break down Insidious or not Insidious, but Malignant. Uh, I don't necessarily know if it's one we need to break down scene for scene because uh, a lot of the scenes in this are kind of pointless. Um, the characters are paper thin. I mean, these yeah. are these are, are paper dolls. This was yet out of another <laughs> movie where I can hardly remember anyone's name. Like mm-hmm. it was a lot of the girl, the lady, Dr. Lady, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lady number two. Doctor Lady Who Dies. Sister Girl. <laughs> Sister Girl Who Wants to Act. Um, yeah. The so our our basic setup. Uh, Juan has this this great visual. He he loves his spooky houses. Um, his spooky impossible houses. Uh, this has been mentioned this, on, on several. Uh, yes, things. and um, this stood out to me right away. The house is ridiculous. I legitimately thought that it was the insidious house at first. Cause again, I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. So I was like, Oh, is this like tied into insidious somehow? Cause it looked like the same <laughs> like 30 like by 40 identical. rooms with just, you know, <laughs> right. all of the somber woodwork everywhere. And it doesn't, I mean, I guess what bothered me about this house is that the outside does not match the inside architecturally none and, of the windows nothing yeah and and it's it's even beyond the size of the spaces because i don't mind a good wide angle take where you know it's obvious that it's a set but it's it's still trying to do something but this was just i don't i feel like it was trying to do you know a, a kind of overlook hotel kind of disorientation but because sure. the house wasn't the star like it is in in parts of insidious Mm-hmm. It just kind of got lost in translation. So that did stand out right away that like, what is with this house? Yeah, it's it's pretty egregious here. I mean, like it doesn't take much to fool the modern movie go to going audience into accepting that this is this is the exterior space. This is the interior space inside. Like it, it doesn't take much. But this one just rampantly reminds you over and over and over again that 40 foot ceiling spaces are not the same. Yeah, that that becomes a big key point later. Um, and he just he shoots it every time like it's the scene of the priest arriving in the exorcist just <laughs> fog everywhere. I'm like, it doesn't appear that there are any houses around them, even though the establishing shot of the house the first time it shows that there's a house like literally like 10 feet away from it on the other side of the driveway. But you can never see those other houses. So it, I, I do. You know, it's, I, this is a dumb thing to start on, but it's indicative of the entire film. 
because if James Wan does not mean for this to be annoying and a little bit funny, then he made a mistake. Like yeah. he screwed up. And I, at this point in his career, I find it very difficult to believe that he screwed up. And so my, my only recourse is to be like, he wanted it to be this way, which means that he intended for this effect to be in place. He intended for me as a horror fan who's being even just marginally aware of what's going on to be like, hey, what the hell, man? <laughs> and then either just laugh it off and be like, oh, well, that was goofy as shit. You know, this is a standard horror movie thing, right? This is what kind of crap horror movies do because you've got the exterior location that you're never going to film in. You know, it's the cabin from Evil Dead, right? Like yeah. the, the exterior of that cabin is like 20 feet by 15 feet, right? <laughs> when you get inside it in Evil Dead 2, there's these open, expansive living rooms, there's bedrooms off to the side. Like, there's just all this space because that's what horror movies need. And, it, but this one, it just, it felt so particular and so specific. Um, so in any case, our, our film opens with our main character returning home, presumably from like a nursing job or something. Um, she is driving a like 1977 Toyota Corolla. Yeah. Wood paneling with wood paneling on the sides, which made me think like, is this a period piece? And then they went inside and the husband's watching a flat screen TV later on. People Uh. are driving modern cars. I'm like, so is this James Wan trying to show us that these people are poor? But yet they have this house. This impossible house, but yet they drive this insane toyota corolla that there's no way this thing we live in an old-timey ghost mansion and that's why we have to drive this terrible car we live in this old-timey ghost mansion with this 42 inch lcd tv (laughs) and we spent all our money on the house and the tv we've got nothing left (laughs) i so again i'm is this is this james wan's uh you know oldsmobile classic right is this is this him this is the car that he drove in high school or something, and he's putting it in here now. And now we're going to start seeing this in all of his movies. Um, like what? Like what is this? Because it's just too specific to to not be intentional. So she gets home. Uh, her husband is a douche. He's obviously a douche. His hair is bad. He's laying around in a flannel shirt, and she's he's pregnant, he's and, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care right. that she's having a baby. That's just right. the mark of a bad man. He's a bad man. Um, Very, very thin characters, but that's okay because he's barely in the movie <laughs> yeah. before we have to hate him and he's gone. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I mean, he was a character who was written commiserate with his screen time. Uh, so there is a violent altercation. So the, uh, the husband, in, in addition to just being a colossal douche, is also apparently a violent douche. Um, and he slams our main character's head. Uh, into the wall very hard leaves a visible dent it's a great stunt like it's a fantastic stunt because like he he, those stunt people they really slammed somebody's head into that wall i'm sure it was padded i'm sure they took precautions but it looks pain it looked like it hurt it looked like it hurt leaves a dent in the wall which was probably cg or whatever but it doesn't matter it looks good um so she gets hurt she locks him out of the room Uh, He ends up sleeping on the couch and he wakes up and then we get really our, you know, our parade through James Wan's masterful world of weird scares and goofy things happening. And, you know, he wakes up in the middle of the night, goes into the kitchen, he stares at the blender blades, which I was like, oh, dude, 
I never really think of blender blades being, you know, particularly scary, but nice slow pan onto nothing. I'm terrified of blenders. That worked for me. Um, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, somehow my hand is going to end up in a blender while it's turned on. I don't know (laughs) if it was just the Goonies that did it to me or what. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that that scene with Chunk is intense. Uh, It's the same, like... uh, you know, reaching into a disposal to grab a ring or something. Which I would that, never do. No, I've seen too many movies. movies. Do not do that. Um, but it's it's got his typical sort of like slow pans to nothing, doors opening, stuff making, you know, clanging noises. It's it's very, very, very well executed as as usual. Um, but it culminates ultimately in his death by a mysterious uh sort of phantom-like shadow figure uh, who violently uh, you know, murders him, uh, breaks his neck. I, I don't remember exactly, but um, yeah, it does, does bad things to our, our you know, poor, abusive douchebag husband. All while our main character is asleep upstairs, although she awakens eventually and, and has an encounter herself. Um, so again, I, I, you know, I don't want to nitpick any of these sequences cause they're all technically well executed, right? Like there's, there's not a ton of threat. There's definitely no emotion involved. Like we don't care about what's going to happen to these people because we don't know them well enough yet. Um, but it, it leads us very quickly into the introduction of our, our, you know, standard stock. I don't believe this is really happening. Cops. Um, and 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 their their ilk, which again has been a standard of of Juan's horror storytelling from the start. You know, it's the same. I mean, those the skeptical cops are basically the main characters of all the Saw films. So I mean, we we know he knows how they work. But uh, so they arrive, and of course, there's some immediate suspicion cast on the wife as as the perpetrator uh, because she was the only one present, but they are willing for a time to at least believe that it was some kind of breaking and entering, uh, sort of thing, even though the house was not unlocked when they arrived. Um, the cops apparently have some kind of, uh, well, again, these are paper thin characters. We know nothing about them. There is a, a cute little, uh, CSI girl, you know, bebopping around talking about how awesome things are. Feels like that one in the platform shoes from NCIS. And who is that? Uh, that is James Wan's wife. That's what I thought. That is who that is. Yes. So she um, can't act. Uh, she probably she shouldn't be she, allowed. She, she can't. Can she can't. She can't. Uh, no. And she, she shouldn't be allowed uh, to be in his movies. Uh, I have a feeling <laughs> that she's going to be in all of his movies. <laughs> yep, you can see that um, written I, in the I, stars. I, but I'm, I've I've examined the the bones, and the bones say she will be in all of his films moving forward. Because James Wan, <laughs> let I mean, me consult my this, magic eight ball. Right. <laughs> Options uh, or uh, what is it? What is it? Uh, likelihood. Straw. I don't remember what what all those options are, but yeah, no, he, she's definitely going to appear in all of his films. Uh, she's, she's cute. She's playing that little, you know, sort of like bebopper. But it's just one of those, like, are cool. it's one of those quirky characters that exists to be quirky and to have nothing mm-hmm. else going for it. And I just kind of hate that because I, I feel like we don't need this girl. 
Um, no, she has no bearing on the film whatsoever. She briefly reappears during a sequence towards the end and then is promptly dropped from the film, uh, which really all the cop characters are dropped from the film pretty much right at the end. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we need somebody asking questions. We need somebody investigating. We need somebody looking at microfiche or doing Google searches. And, and you know, cops are great for that kind of stuff in, in scripts, I guess. Um, so we get three cops. Uh, we get a dude, a lady, and then the uh, CSI uh, girl. And, you know, I buy that they're partners. I buy that they've worked together for a while. Like those relationships feel realistic enough you know, for a film like this, um, the, the, the guy cop, which he's got like a weird name, right? Uh, Kakoa, which I, I kept, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't do any research, um, into, to that name. I assume that it is a, um, it's probably the name of somebody he knows or, it's it's the only connection that I could find is that the kid who played young Aquaman in the Aquaman film. So he's in the movie for like 20 seconds, um, but he played like the teenage Aquaman. His name is Kakoa. That's the only. Well, like, I didn't see Aquaman, so that's um, going to be part of the problem. And that's fine. I I think you're fine. But so I, maybe he just picked it up from there. Maybe his now wife had a fling with him at the time. Who knows? Right. It's Hollywood. Anything can happen. Uh, it's where dreams are made. Um, Is that what they but, say? <laughs> Hollywood basements, I think, is what Brad Charlie Pepper said. Made, <laughs> but um, but uh, so his name's Kakoa. So that's a little interesting. But he's just a cop guy. Like there's really nothing else about him. He doesn't do anything exceptional or interesting over the course of the film. He solves nothing. He figures nothing out. Most of the time, he's completely surprised at everything that's happening, just like everyone else is. Which, he is. You know, he is. Uh, he doesn't even. I don't know. I kind of wish that they had done more with the cops. I'm always looking for horror movies to at least try to pull a Hitchcock with Martin Balsam and and have you know mm -hmm. the interesting PI that's investigating things closely. I kind of hoped that there would be some of that, but there isn't really. And no. there really isn't time in this movie. This movie is no. doing a lot of other things. And it, I, I feel like it just didn't want to take a moment to actually explore that. Yes. And I, I actually would have liked to see a pass at this film. That was totally from the cop's perspective. Yeah. Right. Where the, our, our main character, you know, who's just suffered this, you know, violent event was just that she was the woman that they brought in to question about this thing. And that's how they interact with her and that we stay with the cops so that the cops are kind of like figuring out who is she and what's happened here. But because he's also obsessed with the creation of this new villain and, and how all that's going to work and come together we have to spend a lot of time with her and, and most of the special effects in the film and the experiences that she has is uh, that, that she experiences throughout the film, uh, her, her waking dreams and all of these things, um, you know, are kind of like the visual keystone that they sold it on. Um, much like the further was kind of like the visual idea, the visual concept of insidious 
the, the basement in the house or, or the dark spaces inside our homes was conjuring. This one is, you know, this dreamscape that she experiences when she's you know connected to the killer. So in broad terms, this, this violent event, uh, the woman uh, loses the baby. Um, so she's distraught. Her sister comes in to try and help her. And, and eventually she's trying to like piece her life back together. But as she is doing so, she begins to have these strange visions of the killer, presumably the same killer that murdered her husband and, and as, as she believes her baby. Um, this, uh, this strange killer begins murdering other people, um, doctors specifically. And so the first one she experiences, she hears about it on the news or something, and then she's able to figure out that that's what happened. And then the second one, she's the one who actually tells the police that the man is dead. So these visions get validated. She doesn't know where they're coming from. This casts suspicion on her. I mean, it's, this is all very boilerplate stuff, right? I mean, this is tale as old as time in horror where characters having freaky thing happen to them. They try and tell the people in charge and all it does is make the people in charge think that they're the one who's doing it. Right. Like it's, it's just that in, in a nutshell. And it's, it's done well enough. Uh, Annabelle Wallace, I guess, plays their, our lead character whose name is Madison Mitchell. And uh, the only thing that I recognized her from, which I know she's been in a few, she was in one of the Annabelle movies as well. So I think that's where Wong hooked up with her initially. Um, but she was the uh, love interest for Tom Cruise in The Mummy. Yeah. Um, which, uh, woof. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we talked big, about big that wolf. one. We did. Not good. Real Not bad. good. Um, real, real, real bad. Um, okay, so I I really don't know if I have anything else to say about the end of the first act and most of the second act of this movie, because it's really not that interesting. Um, the visions are cool. Once she starts having them, the world kind of melts away. She's almost in like a, a night terror kind of situation, right, where she's frozen. She can't move and she's just observing what's going on around her as this killer, you know, goes to town and, and murders um, people. I mean, there's some shots that are really good. Uh, there's that one of her looking out the window and the street lamp is flickering. So it draws her attention and then she sees the dark figure across the street. I mean, yeah, that stuff is great. I mean, that's like. And James Wan is really good movies. at that stuff. Totally. And like, a lot of horror movies that would go for the super violence would not take the time to create those lovely vignettes, those moments that you kind of think back to. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I think does set Juan apart as a horror director is that he's capable of striding across the genres and the modes really efficiently. And he understands that you need to give time to all of them to create a sort of, call it a complete horror experience. In some ways, honestly, it feels a bit checklisty. It feels like he's just got this checklist in his mind of here are all the things that I know must be present for a horror film to work. But when they're executed so well, I think that's also where a bit of the Giallo stuff is coming from. You know, people saying, oh, this is like Giallo horror, is that 
in many ways, those Giallo horror movies, if you watch a lot of them, they're all basically the same, right? The directors gave them their own, you know, little flair and stuff, but you watch enough Mario Bava stuff or you watch enough, you know, Fulci stuff. Um, you know, all of these sort of like great Italian horror directors, they're all kind of drawing from the same well. And then they're just kind of painting the world a little bit differently for themselves. And, and Juan seems to have internalized all of that stuff. And then he can just deftly sort of reproduce it. And, and he just makes smart choices about stuff. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, you, you, I guess we could argue that directing is really just executing on seri- a series of choices well. I mean, that's really what it is. But Juan's capability to, to make the right choice most of the time is really, really something. Yeah. Um, like, uh, there's also that sequence, which I, I think will probably become one of the signature sequences in the film which is where she's running through the house and it's that locked top down bird's eye view. Yeah. Uh, as she goes through all the, the rooms, there's a lot of really deft editing there, some really great transition cuts. And, he, and you wouldn't have had to do it that way. Like you could have just had her running down the hallway with a steady cam behind her, but he chose to do this like, like a maze. I mean, that's really what he's doing. It's like the house is a maze. Um, because it's it's a sort of visual metaphor for she's trapped inside this this world and she doesn't realize it she doesn't even know and it's it's really good it's executed very well that's the kind of stuff that I come to a James Wan horror movie for because I know he's going to give me those kinds of things and and I was not disappointed like I got them and and that's awesome right it's, it's really cool um I didn't expect to talk about needle drops in a, in a James Wan film. <laughs> and I guess, I guess technically this doesn't have them really. It's just a score element that gets repeated. Um, but this film makes consistent and repeated use of the main hook from where is my mind by the pixies. Yeah. Um, I so, admire so, the moxie of a director that would try to reclaim that song from Fight Club. From Fight Club, 100%. And that's what I think he's he's kind of trying to. He's he's given it the old college try, I think, to get that song back away from the last, you know, 5 minutes of Fight Club. But whereas Fight Club, you know, flawed film as it is, like I I enjoy it, but I understand that it is now a politically problematic film. By modern standards, people ruined it, is what you mean. Um, yes. Fans of over- Fight Club are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people have overthought that film and sided with the wrong character, um, again and again and again, not realizing that Tyler Durden is not the hero of that. You film. were not watching the same movie that I was. <laughs> um, Brad Pitt's abs, notwithstanding. Uh, Tyler Durden is not the guy you should be listening to. Oh man! And and like Uh, I I feel like using that song is such it's such a telling thing of his age as well, and like the movies that influenced his early career, Mm -hmm. because obviously David Fincher would be one of the directors that influenced him. Because who who isn't working in Hollywood that's in his age group right now that wasn't influenced by David Fincher? So, the saw would not exist without seven. Exactly. Like it wouldn't. Exactly. It just would not be a thing. 
because that's the kind of seven was the kind of movie that you're going through film school in the late nineties. Everybody is, is fucking talking about seven. Everybody's watching seven obsessively. And then James Wan and Lee will now go like, what if one of the guys that was supposed <laughs> to be killed in seven wasn't actually dead? And I right? think, like, I think the usage of where is my mind is maybe, maybe one more tick for your theory of this is supposed to be much funnier than people thought it was yes. because it is the most literal interpretation of that song. A hundred percent. I mean like, like this, that it was so literal that I laughed when it hits in the, in the first part of the movie. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I did the exact same thing. I was like, wait, what is what? Okay. Um, because again, the, all right, let's just get it out of the way. There's a twist in this yeah. film. Uh, there always. It is not, I don't really even think of it as a real twist, though, because it is telegraphed yeah. to high heaven yeah. that this is what is going on. If you the don't only see reason- that this is what's happening, then you need to rethink your movie watching strategy because the movie's telling you all along <laughs> what the twist is. <laughs> And the only reason that I was marginally surprised by the twist is because I had figured it out and I said, certainly not. They definitely would not go that way. Certainly that's not what James Wan would do in this film. And the only surprise was, it was like, oh, yes, it is. That's exactly what he was doing. That is exactly what they're doing. And um, it, it was... It was... And that in and of itself was glorious. Like, I again, I was sitting in an airport with my headphones on watching this movie on my, my MacBook, And I just kind of looked around and I was like, wait, we're going there. Like you're just like, no, no fun in like, you're not funning with me. James Wan. Like, this is it. <laughs> this is what you're doing. Okay. All right. But it, that is because the, the, the last, you know, not even really third, I'd say the last 20, 25 minutes of this movie just wants to play with the idea. Like that's all he wants to do. He just wants to have his big broad slasher action sequences. Like that's just what he wanted to have. You can feel like the whole movie is really just an excuse for those. And so the, the twist, right. And again, this is, this is so it's telegraphed, but yet, not well enough that they they didn't feel the need to have the sister character. <laughs> we have no idea what happened. Given the context give her a little exposition dump in the car. She gets oh, a huge God. car exposition Sorry. dump to the cop that explains literally everything that happened, even though she would have absolutely no way of knowing that stuff. I apologize um, for the volume spike in my microphone because that it, it was laughable. Wow, like, just laughable. Uh, okay, anyway, so the twist is this. Remember how we said that the main character got her head slammed into a wall? Yeah. Well, under normal circumstances, that would just be, you know, fatal concussion, a little <laughs> cracked skull, a little bit of blood. But um, she has a Kawato. Yeah, that's right. This this is a Kawato film. <laughs> this is a film exploring the history and life of Kawato from... <laughs> Uh, total recall. Open your um, mind. So, our our main character Madison, who has this incredibly thick mop 
of dark hair. That looks remarkably like a wig. <laughs> it looks just a little wig-like. And knowing that Annabelle Wallace is also blonde, you know, what have you. Uh, it turns out that when she was a child, because our film actually opens, uh, and I've got to take a moment to mention the hospital, quote-unquote, that these people are working in, which is supposed to be like this hospital where they do like child reconstructive surgery, <laughs> but yet it's this monolithic castle on a coast somewhere in Seattle, I guess. That's just using red LED lights for everything. <laughs> everywhere, you know, it's this huge monolithic tower that they're working in. But we, we open with a, a patient at this hospital that they refer to as Gabriel having an episode. And then that episode, he is like smashing people's arms. He's flinging them across the room, uh, you know, doing all these incredible things. And then that sequence ends with one of the doctors that we eventually see killed in the film saying that it's time to cut out the cancer. Boom, cuts a title, malignant, bah. Which I really did like that opening sequence because it was it was yeah. kind of crazy. I was like, I it's hope the crazy. movie keeps this it up. It reminded me of the hospital escape sequence from From Beyond. That's what yeah, it reminded exactly. me of. Exactly. Was just the, you know, the white halls, the blood smeared walls, you know, all of that stuff. It felt a lot like a an early Stuart Gordon joint. Um with, you know, weirder lighting and, and faster camera moves, but that's just James Wan. Um but so we we've seen this already, and then you know, our title sequence also has a lot of medical imagery and surgery imagery. So what we eventually find out is that the, the reconstructive surgery that was done um, in that sequence was actually done on our main character who has no memory of any of these events, of course. And the surgery was done to not necessarily remove, but suppress a conjoined twin that shared a brain stem with her but was causing tremendous problems because uh, he, Gabriel, was violent and cruel and often told her to do terrible things to other people. So when her, her abusive, douchey husband smacked her head into the wall, he quite literally cracked her skull open, and this gave Gabriel the opportunity to come out. And our, our killer, right, who moves very awkwardly throughout the film, you know something's off. But again, because it's a slasher movie with supernatural elements, you're just like, oh, maybe he's just moving weird. You know, it's kind of how this works. Uh, no, he is a backwards person. Yeah. Um, his face but only comes out of the back of her head. And then apparently all of her joints are double jointed and he just. Bends her arms backwards to be his own arms. And um, and only when it really suits the scene, because most of the stunts are not backwards. No. Most of and, the and stunts the ones, are just a guy with like double boots like on and a backwards jacket. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very low key. It's very low rent. It feels like something that, you know would have been executed in the seventies in that exact way. Right. We're just going to put a backwards coat on this guy. We're going to put a wig on the, his hair. So you don't necessarily know which side is which. And, and we're just going to go to town and it's, it's 
It's I mean, it's fine. It's actually it, it looks pretty cool by the end of the film. They're doing some cool things once the the quote unquote reveal has taken place. Um, and and he you know feels more comfortable showing the full figure and you kind of know everything that's going on. I, I think some of the shots are much more interesting and much more sort of visually engaging. Uh, the early stuff, it's it's very it's pretty low key and, and not necessarily done that well, but. The uh, the visions come when this this other individual has has taken over. Right. So he kind of puts her in a world where she thinks she's just at home. Living her life, doing laundry, you know, cleaning up around the house when in reality he has taken over her body and he is now going on a killing spree. Um, it's so, ch it the scenes are executed. Well, there are a couple of really nice transitions as we flip back and forth between locations. They do this. Um, I don't even know what you would call the effect. It's almost like a, a particle effect where the world shifts and and you know it's they're done in these like 360 reveals i guess and and they're fine i mean it's 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 spooky it's it's meant to sort of shift you from one location to the other cleanly and they they certainly do that job but i don't know your ability to watch this film will be almost exclusively determined by how willing you are to engage with this idea <laughs> like i would you agree would you yes. agree that like yes. if you if you're not willing to buy into this as reality, like you're done. This movie is over for you at the 70 minute mark. Yes. And not, I, I do agree with that. I do. And I also, this movie is just having so much fun. Yeah. I, I, I feel like it has to be. I just, there's nothing about the way this film is put together that makes me think that James Wan is taking this seriously. Yeah. And I just And you have see. to be you have to embrace fun horror. And I just don't know if that's what I don't know if that's what people expected. I think there are certainly people who will, right? Like I, honestly, I think people who you know, watch your your uh, you know, I go back to those 80s slashers because if you watch a lot of Freddy specifically, mm -hmm. most of those movies, the reason why you would come back to them is because of the humor and, and the sort of, I'm not going to say light tone, but the, the sort of jaunty approach to those movies. That's what gives them their backbone and, and I think makes them rewatchable. Um, Friday the 13th does the same thing, but it's it's more on the camp side of things, whereas I think Freddy even though they are campy films, they don't necessarily go for that exclusively. But this movie feels like camp. I, I'm not going to say it's schlock because schlock implies that it's not well made. Um, this is, is very well made, but it rides that line between being sort of campy and serious at the same time. It's, it's very, it's a very interesting tone, but I think the best way to engage with this film is to take it as, a bit tongue in cheek and not super serious. Um, at least that's how it worked for me. Um, he's, it, it also just feels so artificial in, in how he's constructing this villain to fit with slasher tropes. Cause he, he, after the first kill, uh, the killer receives his or her, 
iconic weapon, um, which is a trophy given to the doctor that was a, a caduceus that he strips the snakes off of, and then he gets like this sort of handled knife out of it that says like excellence on it or something like medical excellence. <laughs> um, it's just it's just <laughs> so silly. I mean, if it's again, I come back to this. If it's not silly, then this is a mistake. <laughs> this is just yeah. straight up an error. Um, but if it's intended to be this ridiculous thing that this woman's conjoined twin that lives in her skull would feel like it would be a great thing to pound a catechist trophy into a weapon, I just. I, I just, it makes me giggle. I just go like, oh, yes, it's so good. This is meant to be um, funny. It has to Yeah, be. I, just, I can't, I can't take it too seriously. Um, so we, our, our villain doesn't really do a ton of stuff until the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, he's killing some doctors who were related to Madison's treatment, which is part of the, you know, the, the relatively well put together breadcrumb trail that leads Madison to ultimately understand what's been happening to her, which is, is really the, it's the only mystery of the film really is okay. Well, how's Madison involved with all of this, but the, the speed with which that's all dispensed sort of makes me think that it's really like Juan is just champing at the bit to get through the backstory so that he can have fun. Right. So he can have the big action sequences. Um, because the the reveal that Madison is the killer or is the host for the killer is really dealt with quickly in this film. Like you would think that it would be the thing that drives the entire movie, but it's not. It's it's really something that we as the audience know almost immediately. Uh, Kakoa does some research based on the notes they find at the doctor's house, finds a picture of a young girl that was like the doctor's last patient. And of course that turns out to be Madison. He uh, ages the photo up using technology and um, is able to basically get a perfect picture of her, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> um, but it, it, you know, ties her to this and, and sort of establishes that. Um, the, the other shout out, the, the second doctor who dies is, uh, Oh, what's that actor's name? Christian Clemenson. Uh, who I know best as Socrates from Briscoe County Jr. Uh, he's done lots of other things. I don't want to reduce the man's career to something he did 25 years ago in a probably rightly forgotten Fox television show. But uh, I, I, I've always loved him as an actor, and uh, I was, was very excited to see him in this, even though it is a bit part. But he's playing one of the other doctors who did the reconstructive surgery to, you know, remove Gabriel from Madison. The one thing that I, I don't think really worked for me at all was the introduction of Madison's family, uh, her adoptive family. And I was curious to see your read on on them. Um, um, go ahead. Those, uh, what, what did you think? Those scenes were, were kind of, yeah, I don't know. I felt like they're I don't know if it was just that the characters are so thin that they're not likable. I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, like basically once Madison starts 
realizing that she's involved, something's wrong, her visions are getting stronger. I can't remember. I guess it's her sister's idea to go see their mom and and sort of get some advice. And again, there, there feels like a lot of things going on here that are meant to imply that a lot has happened. Uh, the mother's in a wheelchair. She seems kind of sickly. The father has passed away. You know, so maybe there's, you know, family history of, uh, you know, there've been bad things that have happened to these folks since Madison's come into their lives. But then we get a bunch of home movies that sort of show Madison as a young girl. Yeah having conversations with someone. Um, and it's the, the little girl from uh, the haunting of Hill house who played Theo. Uh, it is very yes. talented little girl. Very always, talented little girl. Always have doesn't to see talented kids. Doesn't, doesn't really, really do much. Um, but I'm, you know, I was happy to see her face. Um, yeah, but still, yeah, those scenes. Well, I guess, I guess I should just talk about what really bothers me, and it's Gabriel's voice. We got to talk about that at some point. Uh, yes, we could certainly do that <laughs> because that's what pulls me out of almost all of of the the stuff about about Gabriel and about her family and her past is that we've got to deal with that fucking voice. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's a choice. It is a choice. So Gabriel, in, in addition to his super strength, even though he is bendy arming uh, Madison's arms behind her back, uh, he also has some telepathic abilities, I guess, and he can communicate through the radio or, or other electronic devices. He eventually is seemingly capable of making phone calls. Uh, with can do whatever the plot requires. Uh, yeah, it, it really felt like that. It felt like, okay, well, we, we can't have this guy talking out of the back of Madison's head. You know, uh, but would I would have enjoyed that more. What does that say about me that I kind of want to see that? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I agree. I think it would have been better to either have him be silent. I mean, you could have still had him talking at the beginning. When or like, kids, you know, I had but. a thought that it would have been nice to have him talking to her in her head. And only she hears these things. And like, maybe right. play up the crazy aspect. Really make us doubt this character. But as it stands, we don't even really doubt that she's not being controlled by something. Um, so I feel like that was a bit of a missed opportunity. It really felt like, A, they're trying to write themselves out of a screenwriting problem in that you have one character that's really two, so we have to have a way to have them interact with people separately. It also, they felt compelled to basically keep the police from believing that Madison could be involved. And so getting the phone call from Gabriel in the interrogation room while she's sitting there is you know, the way that they go like, oh, well, she must not be involved. And, and I guess for the audience too, even, even though by the time those scenes hit, if you're, if you're still in question about whether or not she's involved in this, like you're not paying attention. Um, but so they, I mean, all of this really comes to a head. <laughs> See what it did. Um, <laughs> all this really comes to a head when Madison discovers that Gabriel or the devil, I mean, there's, one of my things with the script for this, and, and you can tell that Lee Winnell was not involved in the script because Lee Winnell has developed into a, a really fantastic screenwriter. 
Like I, I think um, the invisible man is one of the best, one of the best great. thrillers I've seen in years. And upgrade is a wonderful action film that was doing awesome camera stuff well before it was copied by some other, you know, more mainstream action films. Um, like Winnell is, is legitimately a guy that much like James Wan, I'm, I will see anything he does right. at this point. Uh, just no question. Like I am interested in what he does. And, but I, I think he is a more capable screenwriter than James Wan. I think James Wan is a great idea, man. I, I think he's got lots of great ideas. I think he, a lot of his ideas are tied to the presentation of certain visual concepts in his films. Uh, I think that's, that's what he does well. But I, I think without, having a an additional screenwriter there to sort of funnel those I, I think that's when you get things like this um but i mean one of my my big issues with the script is that it keeps the mystery of who madison is for going way too long and i guess that's why i reacted negatively to the family stuff because it yeah. felt like treading the same water like we we were covering this um and and the film drops a lot of its ideas like if it was a misdirect, that's fine. But like Madison throughout the film several times refers to Gabriel as the, the devil, right? Um, which we find out she came from a religious background. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a bit of references there. But there's just, there's a lot of stuff that gets introduced in terms of the script and then is never really paid off. It just kind of dies on the vine, which tells me that it either wasn't very well thought out within the script itself or the elements were not strong enough at the end of the film to warrant spending time on them away from, you know, your, your main plot. And, and, you know, like, is Gabriel the devil? Is he the embodiment of something or is he just another organism that just happened to be evil because he's evil, you know, cause the implication is certainly that he, he was evil even before the surgery was completed and he was sort of suppressed. So like, is he, you know, some sort of like demonic cancer and I really felt that the movie was kind of going to go that way because it, it seems to also not be certain about how supernatural it wants to be. Like it wants to have some supernatural elements to justify what it's doing in the plot, but it never really leans super far into those elements either. So it, it there's some wishy-washy stuff that comes in the, uh, into the second act as they're trying to explore who Gabriel is in relationship to Madison that, I was a little disappointed that we just didn't get any payoff for that stuff. It never really goes anywhere. It just kind of like gets introduced. You get a spooky, you know, push in with a violin sound or something, but then it's over. And and so that was a little disappointing to me and, and felt a bit less like one's typical output in this genre. Um, but really everything, you know, sort of comes to a head at the police station. Uh, eventually Madison <laughs> to is, say the least <laughs> to say the least. Um, so eventually Madison is brought in. She is seen as, um, you know, a, a prime suspect in what's been going on. Uh, they figure out that she was worked on by both of the doctors who have been killed that, um, you know, she may have had a vendetta. There's some other things that sort of cast light on that. I guess the big one is, uh, and this was one of the other things that I thought was a bit strange just in terms of the film. The film was set in Seattle and seemingly only so that they can reference the Seattle underground. 
Um, so if, if you don't know, uh, Seattle, there was a tremendous fire in Seattle that basically burned like 85% of the city or something crazy like that. And instead of rebuilding large sections of the city, they just built over the top of it, right? So it's, it's an elevated city. There's a whole nother level underneath Seattle where there's just burnt down buildings and shit and stuff from that time period. And they turned it into kind of a tourist attraction. Uh, and you can go and walk through it. Uh, apparently there's like a gum wall or something. I don't know. There, there's a lot of stuff. Um, but we've, we've sort of focused in on a tour guide who gives tours of this underground area. And then she gets kidnapped by our killer, I guess, after the first kill was complete. And uh, so she gets kidnapped and then she is, is sort of strung up in an attic somewhere, some kind of industrial looking place with a big fan. And what, we're, what we eventually discover is that this is Madison's real mother, not her adoptive mother, but her birth mother. And she too is, is going to suffer some kind of revenge for what's happened, but it's the the killer uh, through the, the radio explains that it's not time yet. Madness. I kidnapped you earlier than I needed to because reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she, while the cops are in Madison's house investigating some of the suspicious things they've discovered, uh, she gets free and then uh, falls through a ceiling uh, 40 feet <laughs> in a three-story house <laughs> to the, the ground <laughs> below. Um, so again, this impossible, beautiful house that we've, we've seen just already has no bearing on the outside of the, the house. When she's up in this attic, she steps through the, the floor, which, you know, nice little Clark Griswold moment. Um, but instead she, she falls all the way to the ground and we watch it happen. It's a, a lovely shot. You know, the camera just ratchets down pop and we watch her like slam into the ground, but it's, we're meant to believe that this living room that we've been go- walking through since the beginning of the film has like a 35 foot ceiling in it that goes yeah. all the way to the attic of the building, uh, which is just not possible. Like yeah. just not possible. And and I'm guessing the, they needed it to be that high because they wanted to put her in the hospital. She couldn't talk yet. Like she had to be hurt so bad that she couldn't just immediately spill. Oh, the killer is here because there's still some question. Oh, like, is he trying to frame me? Right. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think one character actually says that is like, maybe he's just trying to frame you by stringing up this woman in your attic. You didn't even know. Right. It's like, no. No, not at all. That's not what's going on here. And so that was kind of like my breaking point in the film where I was like, all right, James Wan, just get this over with. We know what this is. Stop dancing around. And fortunately, that's exactly what happens. It was just in time because I was yes. almost to the point where I'm like, OK, this is stupid. Yeah. Um, if if they'd gone on, I mean, literally, if they'd gone on five minutes longer with this pretense, Maybe she's maybe she is the bad guy. Maybe she's not. It. I think I would have completely disengaged with the, with the story, hundred percent. Yeah. Um. But so we wind up in a a uh, prison lockup for for the ladies. And who are the people who are in this lockup? This was such a weird scene. <laughs> it's 
so weird. Why are they all in such <laughs> ridiculous costumes? I want to know what weekend James Wan spent in Seattle to make him think this is what, like the drug Incredible. tank in a Seattle jail like, looks like. Like you have the insult. you have the biker lady, you have like seventies Afro lady. I, I just this was amazing. You would never see this many costumed people in a lockup unless it was Halloween. Yeah, no it 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 feels again. It feels really artificial. It feels yeah. like James Wan being like, hey, look well, at all these people, guys. It's, it's Check out also this. it's also something that is is softening body horror a little bit because you then see right. all of these people brutalized. Yes. And it's <laughs> I believe that they were supposed to be two things cartoonish, hence mm-hmm. the costumes, and yes. criminals. And that's right. why we would be okay with them dying in the ways that they die. <laughs> um, Which one was your favorite? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make it seem like nothing happens in the second act, but most of it is so inconsequential. Um, the sister goes on a road trip to the hospital, which is just, I mean, it's... I could have done without that. Well, nothing happens. Yeah. I mean, literally nothing happens. She opens a box and finds a tape. And then doesn't apparently doesn't wash it and brings the tape back to her mom's house and then watches it there or watches it. I don't know. I, I could do with fewer scenes being given to us with old VHS tapes. There, I, it is a bit I of a crutch. I don't want to learn information from old VHS tapes anymore. Um, uh, I'm afraid that the Blair Witch Project has some different. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a. It, this movie struggles, and honestly, many horror movies do, uh, with exposition. Right? Yeah. It's and it's just a time balancing thing. Um, Juan is is I'm not going to say he's a director that is really heavily focused on moving quickly, but his movies in general have strong pacing. Right? I mean, if we're going to be like YouTubers for a minute, we'll talk about the pacing of this film. <laughs> um, Juan is v- seemingly very aware of the pace of his films. And for the most part, I mean, I'm not really including like Aquaman, which has got, you know, comic book movie bloat all over it. But well, and, and, and 40 different people had their hands in how that movie was going to play out, whether yeah. he directed it or not. But I mean, like The Conjuring, it's a swift little thing. It moves pretty fast. Uh, this is kind of in the same vein. Uh, Insidious 1 and 2, the wand directed ones move pretty well, though 2 gets a little bit bloated but it's it's necessary to tell the more complicated story um you know it's it just Juan is one of those directors that i i generally am not bored when i am watching his stuff this one is is probably the worst offender for that but even in saying that like it moves very quickly right it, it's yeah, not quite kind this... of an ebb and flow to the the excitement i mean it feels like he he very much sits down and says, okay, I want to have, you know, this moment and then take a break, have a breather, and then we'll have this moment and then we'll have another breather. So there's a lot of space in between, you know, those, those action beats, which I don't mind Mm -hmm. that. Um, But this movie kind of runs a little bit close. Like, well, like we said, if it had been any longer (laughs) with, Mm -hmm. with the, the, the pretense that she may be innocent, it would have been too much. Yes. Like it was, it was very close to that line. Um, I, I think his, his sequences are, are planned well and, and 
you know, generally, you know, pretty solid. Um, but there is also just a lot of stuff in this movie that is there because it's a horror thing. And the hospital, I think, is the most obvious example of this. Because we're shown that hospital, and I, I believe the date is like 1993, right? Uh, so it's like yeah, 20 years prior. And and it's a, a working, functioning, people live and work here hospital in 1993. But then when the sister is walking, so presumably would have closed down after that. Right. So like 1995. So it's been 15, 20 or 25 years. But when the sister is walking through it, I mean, there's like the old timey. Like wicker wheelchairs and and it it looks like something out of, you know, that dumbass movie that Gore Verbinski made, the the wellness movie, Uh, you know, it's like Mr. Kellogg here. Are we going to eat some (laughs) cornflakes for breakfast? You know, like it's it's that kind of thing where I'm like. Okay, well, that's that. If this hospital was really shut down in the '90s, there wouldn't be a wheelchair that looked like that here. So, what's going on? Well, you just knew it looked cool for horror, yeah, and so a lot of that sequence, house. right? And and so a lot of that just feels kind of artificial. Um, and and the fact that they tried to intercut the sequence in the the cell with that uh, was a bit of a like. Mm, yeah. These are not equivalent scenes. Uh, we don't need to be cutting back and forth between. I mean, it sister it kind looking of, through boxes. I wish that it would have just simplified, like cut out the hospital and just have her find like a box of Emily's adoption stuff. Sure. And find something about this surgery, and and you know, let us figure out the rest. I don't know. That's my one pet peeve. Is you know, we had already gotten there with you. I was already yeah, on board. Yeah, I didn't I need, need that. I don't need the sister to explain to me what's going on. I get oh my it. god! Like I <sighs> because in the the prison lockup scene, which is by far the most horrific in the film, um, our our heroine Madison uh, begins to demolish these women these criminals uh in this room uh we do get a a little guest star moment from uh, zoe bell uh, who you probably know from some of quentin tarantino's films he's a big zoe bell fan uh very famously she was the uh stunt woman on top of the white car in death proof right? mm. among other things um, so she shows up as uh, I think her, her credited name is Scorpion, uh, and she is a very burly uh, woman in the lockup who begins uh, causing some trouble for Madison, uh, prompting Gabriel, Madison's dark passenger, if you will, mm-hmm. to emerge. And we get to see that process happen. Uh, and I don't know, man, at this point, I was so just taken aback by the developments that I, I kind of loved it. I thought this scene was great. Oh, I love her absolutely ripping people up. That was great. My favorite was the skull crush. Yes. Uh, and, and man, there were some good skull crushes. Um, 
again, the VHS exposition is fine. Uh, they spin her around and we get to see the Gabriel. They call him a parasite before the removal. And it's like these little spindly, you know, T-Rex arms hanging out of her back and, and like the face on the back of her head. Yeah, it's just it's like, her coado you know, in the back. It's it's her back coado. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, all the things click into place, her, her big hair, the bleeding that she's been having when she's been seeing these things, all of that all kind of comes to a head and, and we see Gabriel emerge for the first time and, and quite literally her skull splits open in the back of her head and, uh, and a face uh, comes mm-hmm. out of it. Oh, a tiny face. <laughs> a tiny, a tiny face with like weird teeth, and and it just it just looks like the like he wants to say like rah, rah, rah. <laughs> like it's just it's such a goofy effect, I, and so and so unrealistic. Like if a human being opened up their, I don't care if this is a parasite on the back of her head. If you opened up the back of your skull. Yeah. And let your brain out. Um, <laughs> there's going to be some consequences. I mean, I'll just put it that way. There will be consequences. Awesome consequences. You'll get superpowers. And letting your brain out. Um, I I don't know. I, I appreciate that James Wan tries to do as many things practically as he can. And this is a really nice practical effect. It's not CG. Um, I'm sure elements of it are like there's there's got to be some you know pieces of it that are CG, but it's for the most part a practical effect and and then he's just hired some contortionists and you know probably some dancers who are very good at moving in reverse and and that's it that's what you get um, they've got like a weird face mask Annabelle Wallace face mask on the the back of the stunt performer's heads so that they can. Um, I really like it when the jacket collar is pulled up so that it looks like she also has a tiny face. So it's, it's just like a giant head with two tiny faces on either (laughs) side. (laughs) It's just such an interest. I mean, it, 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 it's visually interesting. Um, you know, we've talked at this on this film before about, you know, it's sometimes you go to movies to see things that you've never seen before, right? (laughs) Just to experience and, and, and engage with something that, you know, you just, you never would have in a million years been like, I want to see a backwards person. Do you want to see through Zoe Bell's head? Do you want to see a horror movie villain? That's also a He-Man toy. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, remember when GI Joe got real weird in the (laughs) nineties? Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's it's just out of this world it, it, and it's so implausible and so balls to the wall crazy that you just can't help but be a little bit engaged and be like, all right, OK, let's let's see where this goes. It, um, the and the third uh, act honestly reminds me so much of Reanimator because it was just. Yeah. Really? Yeah. This is what we're doing now. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd I'd feel more comfortable comparing this film to to Stuart Gordon and and Reanimator and From Beyond than I would like you know classic you know Giallo horror like yeah. I, I really would because it it I mean it could, those Stuart Gordon films were in and of themselves reinterpretations of Giallo style horror 
through the lens of H.P. Lovecraft, right? Like, I mean, that's that's really kind of where they went to try and get some of their horror inspiration. So it would make sense that James Wan would find, you know, bring some of that into it as well. But, um, yeah, it's just it's so far out there and it's so ridiculous that you can't help but kind of root for it a little bit. And and in some ways, I feel like that's a kind of weird microcosm of James Wan himself. Like he's so far out there and he's a little bit weird that you're just kind of like, I want you to succeed. Yeah. I want you to, cause you're, you're just kind of doing your thing. I just I like it. I want to know that more people are watching weird movies like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, it's sad to me. I, I watch it, you know, there's a YouTube channel I like that's uh he's changed it a bunch of times. I think the, the channel itself is called like fanboy flicks or something, but he does a, a series on there called just weird movies with Mark. And, you know, the vast majority of the movies that he watches are old, right? They're like pre-1985 because we don't get that many weird movies anymore. And if we do, I mean, like, you know, something like Birdemic or The Room. Like, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking like, like studio-released productions, right? Like, have you ever seen the Killer Bees one with Michael Caine? No. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. Michael Caine in the early 70s made a killer bee movie. And I, I think it's just called The Swarm. I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's ridiculous. Like, it's just totally ridiculous from top to bottom. And we just don't get stuff like that anymore. It just doesn't happen that often. So when it does, you kind of got to think it's a little bit special. And, and um, no one, almost no one is trying to do anything. You know, I'm going to sound like such a poser here. No one's trying to do anything very original. Um, the name of the game is safe, yeah. right? Like safe is, you know, if you want to try something mm. new with horror movies, you should probably just do a remake like Candyman or wait, don't do that. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe don't do that. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe but, you know, like well. just like that seems to be where people go is just to remake territory. Or uh, yes, or reimagining or continuing some franchise. And I really do feel like, well, this movie, it is really obvious what everything is coming from this is very original <laughs> this is very it much is. its own thing it really is um cuz okay so we get the 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 cell scene where she just obliterates all these these women um i mean punching through their chest <laughs> skulls she rips out zoe bell's eyes i mean like just totally 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 crazy stuff like the film just goes from well, this is kind of a quiet movie with a girl looking through hallways to holy shit. You know, yeah. like it's just that kind of of expansion of its worldview to like, oh, no, we're going places, guys. We still got 15 minutes left in this bitch. Like, just wait. Right. Yeah. And it's it's just this really interesting thing. So the the big action set piece of this, you can tell the thing that Juan was probably most excited about producing takes place in the police station. Uh, which we've seen in some nice wide shots and it looked very, I was kind of trying to think of a space uh, in a, in a film that I, that was comparable, but I mean, in essence, the moment I saw it, I was like, there's going to be an action sequence here. To me, when I first saw a wide shot of just the, it was just a scene real early in the movie, the first time we see it and it's, you know, the checkered floor and the really dramatic and it's zoomed out so you can, just have this absolutely ridiculous wide shot of the room. It looked like a video game level. 
And I kind of had the same thought uh, where I was yeah. like, something's going to play out in this room. Otherwise, we wouldn't yeah. be shown this room with the scale. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's 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 an artificially constructed room that's going to be designed to do something. And so this last action set piece, I must say. It's it's really cool to see Juan develop as a filmmaker, and and I think he's going to be a director that. And most directors are this way, except for maybe like a guy like David Fincher, who's just been sort of technically brilliant from the start. Um, but with with Juan, you can tell that his action chops from something like Aquaman, he's figured out how to do them at scale and budget. Mm-hmm. And so this last sequence, and it's not like the entire sequence is perfect. A lot of it is, is a lot of it's pretty straightforward and not not especially interesting. But there is one shot that opens it that is a single, you know, sort of whirling camera shot. It reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff that Alex Preuss did in iRobot, actually. Um, but the camera's just whirling around them, and sh- and and the the you know backwards slasher Gabriel man is uh, whirling around and chopping off arms, and and it's it's really technically executed. There's a bit of speed ratcheting. There's a bit of Three sixty panos, and you know, there's just there's a lot of stuff happening, but it all flows exceptionally well. And you know, Juan pulls pulls it off. I mean, as well as any other action director might have. And and it's a really really violent, gory, but satisfying scene where you know we get to see this killer sort of in in full mode. Um, our cops get the ever loving crap beat out of them, uh, which is fitting because they i mean like i cops like this in most movies are useless ultimately um because they they have no relevance in the plot like they're not really going to stop or change anything they're just there to give they, an excuse for i the always feel questions i always feel like they they also represent you know that the in a supernatural horror film or slasher film they're supposed to be there to to show you that no one can help not even the cops. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's very Halloween, you know, yeah. and, and, and all of them, all of them, because even like the Heather's dad and Nightmare on Elm Street was a cop and it's like, mm-hmm. well, he's not going to do anything. Um, but uh, yeah, just just, you know, it's it's a good scene to show that the cops can't stop it, it that, you know, Madison is going to be the only one who can stop Gabriel's spree or what have you. Um, but. So our, our final scene, you know, is is at the hospital because, of course, now that the doctors are dead, uh, Gabriel wants revenge on Mama right, for abandoning him when he needed her most. And it doesn't work super well, but again, this is one knowing that to have a horror film work you have to have some kind of emotional gravitas to it. Like there, it's at some point, um, you know, and, and we could look at cheesy fun horror and still see that, right? Like, you know, what grounds tremors, right? What's the emotional heart of tremors? It's the friendship between Kevin Bacon and, and Fred. Yeah. It's, it's what it's the ensemble, you know, that's, it's, yeah. that's what you love. And, and don't get me started know, on tremors, man. <laughs> I know, I know. I but I ask it because it's very specific. Like tremors is intent is a is a horror movie that is intended to be funny. Like yes. they are actually trying to be 
intentionally humorous, but it's anchored by these emotional relationships mm-hmm. at the center of it where you care about the people. And this is you know, not <laughs> this. This film is at least attempting to do the same thing by providing this sort of emotional relationship um, between, you know, Madison and Gabriel and, and their mother. It's attempting. And it's it's fine. Right. Uh, there's a little bit of the, you know, the sister as well. You know, Madison, you know, betraying her kind of thing. But ultimately, it comes down to uh, Gabriel has to be sort of stopped from within. So they, it's been established in the film up until this point that they share a brain. Um, you know, they're not independent of each other. And part of Gabriel's skill, what he's been doing is is sort of locking Madison away in a prison of his own design so that she doesn't know what's going on. And once Madison realizes this, she you know assumes that she can do the same thing to him. But the thing that triggers it and kicks it off is that and again, I don't I don't know how the sister knows this. Um but apparently to keep himself alive it is Gabriel who has been causing her miscarriages. Yeah. Um, How did feeding she off of her, her, her unborn children. And it is this revelation that pushes Madison over the edge. Um, I, I think there was a mention in one of the VHS tapes. I, I didn't go back to verify, but I think there's a mention that he's, he's a parasite, right? He feeds off of her, but I don't know if any of them made, and I mean, she would have been a, a girl at the time, like eight or nine years old. So I don't think any of them would have made the logical leap. Well, if she ever has kids, <laughs> we'll probably eat the kids. Um, so I, I don't know where that bit of exposition came from, but it was the motivation that Madison needed to you know, take control. Because one of the things that is established earlier in the film is that she's just desperately wanted to have a blood relation. Um, and that's sort of what leads into the revelation that she's adopted. She came from this different place and, you know, all this different stuff. But, you know, the, the irony is that she has a blood relation. He's just trapped inside her skull. And, and he sucks. Murderous. Yeah. He's, he's like really shitty. And I, I feel like the, the movie really wanted to land on this message of, you know, your family is the one you find, not the one you're that's born right. with. Found family. But my goodness, it did not sell that at all no to the point that i kind of wish that that wasn't in the movie because it's like don't cheapen this i want to get back to the skull crushing yeah the uh again this is this feels like one who at this point knows how to construct a horror film effectively i have to have this there has to be this emotional core or else this is all for nothing so I, i know why it's here and i'm fine with it but it doesn't really add much to the film. Um, neither, you know, her desire to have a child, the adoption subplot, the mom subplot, like none of it really matters. Um, in, in the long run, at least. Um, and, and we don't really get a ton of payoff, right? Is now Madison going to like have a relationship with her mom? Does the mom feel guilty? Are they going to be like buddies now? I kind of don't think so since she kidnapped her and, hung her in an attic for a week or whatever you know, but i kind of like that the movie just ends though 
It does. It hard stops in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I, I really expected a bit more of a denouement, but it really just ends with Madison asserting control over Gabriel inside her mind, putting him in like a, a mental prison <laughs> where he says that he he's always going to be there. And and then she gets her line. And it's again, I cannot believe that James Wan isn't wasn't sitting in his editing bay, just cackling at some of these lines and shots. Like if he wasn't, if he was sitting there being like, oh man, this is awesome. I'm a good filmmaker. I I just would be surprised because the last shot of Madison, well, maybe not in the movie, but the last shot of this little sequence is she traps him in, in her mind. Is she's literally standing at like a, a gate, like a barred gate. The light is super harsh from one side. And then she's like, he's like, you'll never be rid of me. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I know, but next time I'll be ready. And then she slams the door shut. And it's. It was silly. Again, I, I, it's so silly. I, again, I've complained about, you know, the Giallo horror comparisons. Cause I don't, I don't really think they're that present in this film, but this shot of, of a woman just in single, like harsh lighting, just slamming a door shut. That feels a bit Giallo horror to me a, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but she just locks him inside and then she wakes up in the backwards coat with the backwards collar. And her brain is still exposed. Uh, I don't want to make it seem fine. like her brain is fine. <laughs> um, he may be trapped mentally, but her brain's still sticking out. And then she, it kind of gets sucked back together, which. That happens. I mean, is is that a telepathic thing? Is that like one of his skills is to telepathically close <laughs> massive um, cranial wounds? Um, I I don't know it. This movie strains credulity on purpose, and then just sort of asserts itself in such a way that it demands you accept it as possible. <laughs> Yes. I kind of love it. It's very audacious in that way. It's just like, no, dude. Yeah, totally. The skull just splits open. Um, we did get a, I, I did like the little scene at the end where the sister's like, you can't, it's too heavy. And she's like, it's always my, it's always my body. <laughs> it's, I was the I one just, lifting the heavy thing. I can lift this heavy thing. I like that. That was good. In my dreams, I'm able to fly and lift heavy things. I wonder if I could just believe in myself hard enough. I mean, in James Wan's malignant world, <laughs> yes, you can. Anything's possible. If you if you believe in your if you believe strongly enough in your head goblin. If I believe <laughs> in my Kawato, then he will That's change right. my life. If your if your head goblin is strong enough, you can do anything. Uh you just need a good head goblin up there. Um yeah, I mean, so we get a reconciliation. The camera pans, and and we are are left on a a light that is turned off, but we hear an ominous hum, because one of the other things that Quato uh, can do is is make lights explode yeah. and stuff. Um, electrical powers, which again, of light never explained. Who knows? Who cares? But it's it's obviously meant to imply that you know we can do more with this, uh, which question mark i'm not sure you can um i i i'm sure you could 
I'm sure you could. Should. I mean, James Wan is very good at finding his way into sequels that probably shouldn't work and, and generally successfully, like not always, but um, I, I don't know where you would go from here unless he uses a sequel to actually execute on his like superhero idea for this character um, where we've established like the character is capable of great evil, but is also sort of this exceptional individual. And if, if Madison can control him, but channel his ability, maybe, you know, you could stop bank robberies or <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what you would do with this without, you know, sort this of is like how he gets that malignant it. man idea made. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, Boom Comics is still listed as a as one of the production companies for this, so it's it's definitely the same idea, just being executed in this this very different way. Um, but yeah, I again, it's it's hard for me to say that this movie is good because I really don't think it is, but I think it's good because I I have to believe that James Wan knows it's not good. And that he sort of knew that going in and made it anyway. But that made that's a bit of a leap. Like I'm making that leap in my mind to get to that place. And I'm not sure anybody else or, or everybody else would be willing to do that. Um, and you have to ask but, the question, mm. should we as an audience be willing to do that? Or should we demand that filmmakers be less obtuse in their intentions? <laughs> um, but I, right. I mean, I like that this movie is all over the map. Um, yeah, it's it's again, it's a movie that really shouldn't have been released by a major studio. Certainly not with this big of a budget. I just no. This just the wild thing is like the money was spent on this movie, and wow, the things that it's about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I it 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 boggles the mind. It legitimately boggles the mind. Um, it it just doesn't make sense that a studio would release this as an as a as a movie you know again if if it was just theatrical i, I think it would have been a disaster yeah. if this were 2019 um, this movie would have failed oh for sure yeah I, nobody would have seen this uh, well probably the same number of people we would, would have, have seen, seen this in these conditions <laughs> would have seen it then but no more um because I don't, I don't see this being a movie that gets positive word of mouth as you walk out. I, I haven't looked up; it's like Cinema Score or whatever, but it's got to be just atrocious. Because um, I, I would, I, it is easier for me to see people walking out of this being pissed off than really having a great time. And and I could be totally wrong on that. Uh, it looks like it's got a C cinema score, just straight C. I've kind of, um, I mean, I've been, you know, reading how my friends, my circles have been responding to it. Some colleagues that I have have been talking about it a lot in like team discords and stuff. Sure. Um, and overall, the response is, you know, from the people who I know like horror movies, they really, really like it. But it's always sort of hinged on, wow, when the movie really goes off, it, it sure. Really goes <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of it. And then the other side is, I did not like this movie. 
Right. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody actually likes this movie. They're just people who are willing to put up with the ride for where it goes. There are people who love movies. You know. Yes. And I, I and I'm I'm definitely in that camp. Like I yes. was I was pulled along enough that by the time you know the the proverbial shit hit the fan, I was like, okay, all right, let's see where this goes. And 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 then I left relatively satisfied. It's like, okay, yeah, that was fine. Uh, I don't know if I need more. I don't know if I'm demanding a malignant two anytime soon, but I would like I, to see more one-off films anyway. So I kind of yeah, hope no. this just stays where it is. I don't see James Wan coming back to this. I mean, he left it open in case he wanted to, but I, this almost feels like he would hand it off to somebody else. Uh, if there was ever a, a sequel or something, I don't think he would. Oh, there will be a sequel. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, um, there will be you know, a sequel. This, That's how this, this we. We may just be witnessing a director literally cleansing his palate, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this might be James Wan going for a cheeseburger after you know working out for eight months and and eating nothing but chicken and broccoli, right? Like this, this may be what this is for him. It's just like I've been working on these highly technical, really challenging movies for the last five years, six years, who knows how long. I just want to go and make something small and fast, goofy and fun and just have a good time. Right. And, and I'm, and if that's the case, which I, I don't have a hard time believing that, then I think this is really great. Like, I think it's really good. It's, it's, it's just him sort of, getting out these things that he's had rolling around in his head for a while. And I'm, I'm kind of here for it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird film. I do not want to make it sound like it is anything but a incredibly strange viewing experience that will more than likely leave you frustrated in one way or another, but I still had a good time. I still enjoyed watching it. Yeah, no and regrets. When things pop off. Those last twenty minutes, they're they're pretty great, like really great. You know, and I don't um, I don't walk away from most movies with regrets. <laughs> like I don't I don't feel like movies waste my time most of the time. Even bad movies, I don't come away from that experience feeling like I had my time wasted. Um, but this is this is far from a waste of time. This is. This is a unique movie, and and we're not likely to see stuff like this get popular. I don't think *Malignant* is going to lead some new charge of you know super violent <clears throat> Italian horror-inspired Cronenberg kind of affairs. I just don't think that's going to happen. No matter how much I would love to see it, I don't think it will. No, I don't think so either. Um, I mean. I, I appreciate this too because it really does feel like Juan going back to the things that probably got him excited about horror in the first place. Yeah. You know, this and and that has an energy to it on screen of of him wanting to just sort of play in that sandbox. That honestly, for the last decade or so, he probably hasn't had that much carte blanche to play in. 
You know, I'm sure he's involved in all the Conjuring movies, and supposedly there's another Insidious movie coming. I'm sure he's, I mean, something is coming across his desk that he has to sign off on and say, yeah, that's fine, go. But it's but always to nice really to have something engage that's with really the technical creative. aspects of creating horror again. Um, you know, he just he hasn't done a ton of that. And and it's exciting to see him sort of play um in that. I think there's a lot of shortcuts in this movie. There's a lot of really simple things that he does because that's what's expected in horror films, probably just for speed. But even with those shortcuts, I think it's still I think it's still pretty fun. It's 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 very silly, but it's a lot. Well, um, any any final thoughts on Malignant as we wrap up? Um, I think uh, I think we've expressed a lot of ideas, but I, I guess we can try and bring it all together. In in general, I think that this movie is more fun than it is horrific, unless you count the violence. But even that is sort of cartoonish. Um, yeah, it's so graphic. It's so it's it's basically cartoon at that. Yeah, point. and like I said though. Body horror movies really did help me, you know, understand as a little kid that like movies are fake. This is not real. You know, and it kind of helped me disconnect and like enjoy horror for what it is. Um, and I think that this movie is kind of doing similar things. Um, disconnect, let go, enjoy. Um, and yeah, <laughs> go see some more. You know, movies like this, when you're done, you'll have to go back a few decades. Right. Yeah, because you won't we won't find anything like this in the modern horror pantheon, which is why I think, you know, as as you've said over the course of this, that's why people are reacting to it is because. You know. These kinds of movies being greenlit and I and one thing I, I is undeniable, this is an original idea. Like I've certainly seen people play with the idea of, you know, parasitic twins and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's not, they have not done it like this this way, (laughs) like this. It's, it's unique at the very least. Like I said, you've you've probably never seen anything like that before. Um, And that is in horror rare at these, at this point, it's rare to see something truly unique in terms of horror output. Um, even though, you know, obviously Juan is drawing upon a lot of different inspirations for his unique thing. Um, but it's still different. And I got to give him props for that. Uh, I'm in the same boat. I, I think this is well worth your time. Uh, again, is it worth signing up for HBO Max? I mean, if you could find a, tree for, a free trial somewhere. Yeah, probably. Uh, is it worth going to the theater? Well, no, you know, it's plague time. Stay home. <laughs> probably not. But it's I I definitely think it's worth watching, especially if you're a fan of Juan's earlier work. Like I said, it's kind of fun to see him go back to some of his original form in terms of how the film is put together, because it's obviously a smaller, faster, you know, swifter production. Um, but also because you can really see Juan's sort of technical mastery of horror technique. Um, I mean, like he is the consummate horror director. He understands how to build these scenes, how to create tension, how to execute jump scares. Now he's layered on how to create relatively interesting action sequences on top of it. Um, he's, he's just, I think James Wan in five to 10 years 
maybe one of the most exciting directors working. Right. I already think he's really damn exciting. And again, we've already said that we're both there for whatever he does just as a matter of course, but he seems to be the rare director who is willing to grow in public, right. To try things to see if it works or if it doesn't to, to fail and change in response. Whereas most modern directors, especially your, you know, quote unquote auteurs, they have their path. This is what I do. This is how I'm going to do this sort of screw everybody else's opinion. But Juan feels very reflexive, right? He's like, no, let's try this or that didn't work. Let's, let's do this instead. I already brought him up once, but I, and and I'm not saying that they are the same, you know, style or in in tone or even in my love for them. But John Carpenter is very similar. Um, Mm -hmm. He is, he is perfectly comfortable having Halloween and ghosts of Mars in his filmography. And I kind of love that about him. I love that he's sure. just, you know, hanging out with his synthesizer, just like, no, I'm cool that I made that movie. Even if you didn't like it, that's okay. Can't win them all. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very sort of practical take on Hollywood. Um, you know, Carpenter very famously became, you know, disenfranchised with Hollywood as an entire system, you know, really in the, early nineties. Most of his pretty much from they live on, there's this subtle undercurrent and everything that he does that the film industry just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and that it's just people I mean like uh you know Escape from LA is a bad movie. Escape from LA is it's a I like movie. Escape like, from LA. I don't care what anybody I, says. I do too. I do too. But objectively it's not a very yeah. good movie. But I mean there is a character in that film who is like a Hollywood doctor who just butchers people. Yeah. <laughs> like he just murders them so that they could be quote unquote beautiful. Um, so, I mean like, but that, that has led to Carpenter being this guy who just kind of does whatever he wants to do. And I feel like Juan, if he's not already there, he's very close to that. And that one, the one who has no filter is going to be very interesting to say the least. Like this is evidence of that. Um, I think this, this movie could have benefited from a few people saying no on occasion, as I said before, like, I think that would have helped it maybe be a better version of itself than what we got, but I still like it for what it is. Um, And if this is the kind of stuff that James Wan's going to be producing for the rest of his career, then I'm kind of here for it. Um, I'm definitely here for it. Um, I, uh, I would like to see him collaborate with Lee Winnell again on a script though. Yeah. Uh, that, that I think is maybe the, the special sauce that was missing from this ingredient, uh, is, is having, is having, you know, a, a screenwriter like Winnell involved. And I, I don't want to make it seem like Winnell was the guy who was, you know, Winnell's made some stuff that wasn't great either, but, um, they're a good combo. They seem to work well together. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like they seem to be two guys that when they get together and put their heads, put, put their heads together, put pens to paper, they come up with stuff that kind of changes things. Right. I mean, saw changed the horror film industry and in many ways is still kind of feeling that effect. Um, Insidious and the conjuring 
changed the film. I mean, look at the, the just the raw outpour of ghost, spooky. And I can't thank those movies enough I mean, for that because ghost movies are just, I'm all about them. I well, want I mean, more supernatural horror. We've not talked much about Mike Flanagan on this show because mm. Mike Flanagan doesn't make failures. He's so. my prince. But I mean, like Mike so Flanagan, that like one of his big studio projects post Oculus was Ouija, uh-huh. Ouija Two, and I don't think the Ouija series would exist without the Conjuring series. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like so, and and f- for my money. In terms of, you know, Juan is a very particular kind of horror director, you know, this this sort of big bombastic like oh, horror. But for the subtle, evocative, exciting horror, like Mike Flanagan is the dude as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, he I mean, we're we're never going to talk about him on this podcast because I don't think he's going to make anything that will end up on this because it's just I mean, yeah. I I even liked Oculus. I watched that oh, yeah. when it no, first landed. Is, I loved it. Oculus so fun. Yeah. Um even though it's got that Brenton Thwaites kid in yeah. it. Yeah. Like, oh god. Um uh, Hush was really good. I mean, yeah, that's where we got mm-hmm. him with Kate Siegel. Um and they're married now. They are. Um it's so adorable. But yeah, I mean, you know, just there are so many good horror directors right now. And James Wan is definitely one of them. Mike Flanagan is definitely them. Lee Wannell is mm-hmm. one of them. Is definitely one of them. Yeah. This is a good time to like scary movies. It, it really is. And and I'm glad to see horror directors being given the opportunity to branch out to other things. Uh, and if James Wan's willingness to do that paves the road for others to follow, because much like comedy, horror is one of the most difficult genres to direct effectively and the people that do it either become trapped in that world making horror films forever because it is challenging and difficult and so they kind of just keep doing it um or you know if if one can can open that up and bring some of those people in who are capable of constructing powerful emotional scenes using film language then i i think we're going to be better off and uh, you know, Juan's success will probably you know be a window like that. I'm sure it you know Lee Winnell and his success with The Invisible Man. I think that's going to do a lot for his career, even though that wasn't a you know, horror movie traditionally. It certainly had those elements. Um, yeah, I, I I think we need more horror directors sort of coming into the into the fold and be, being given the chance to do larger films because I think. Um, I think their perspective is unique and valid and necessary, right? Um, so I was watching uh, the Green Lantern film not too long ago. I like to watch it periodically because it's because you it's enjoy not pain. Like, <laughs> like people talk about it being terrible. It's not terrible. The problem with that movie is that it's nothing. It is so bland that it, it is. It is unremarkable and unmemorable in every way. Like it's, it's literally a film you can spend two and a half hours watching and remember nothing about it when you're done. 
And I and not like this movie, like Malignant, where it's like, oh, I don't remember those character names. That's because they don't matter, right? In but you're like they're supposed to matter in Green Lantern, and you can't remember them. Like they're famous characters, right? It's like, do you not remember Hal Jordan? Well, that's a problem. Um, but that's because you know you've got a guy like Martin Campbell, who is this incredibly accomplished, you know, sort of action film director. But there's nothing else there, right? Like it's just action film director, right? Like there's, it's one of the reasons why I I was legitimately shocked that Casino Royale was as good as it was. Cause when I saw that Martin Campbell was attached, I was like, Oh geez, it's just more of the same. Cause he directed most of the Pierce Brosnan ones too. And, or a couple of them at least. And I don't know. It's, it's one of those things I, I think horror directors would do a lot to help with some of these big budget films, you know, being more unique and interesting. Uh, you know, Marvel seems willing to take risks on, on some of their directors, of course, but you know, we'll see. But at the same time, I don't necessarily want them to get pulled into making big, you know, three and a half year long projects where guys fight fish <laughs> and stuff like you know, <laughs> we don't have to necessarily do that. Please. Although I will say there is a horror sequence, horror-esque sequence in Aquaman that uh, one executes very well because of who he is. So. Uh, because there are some fish who are scary. I don't know if you knew that. There's scary <laughs> fish in the ocean. And sometimes Aquaman has to deal with the scary fish too. Thank goodness. James Wan was like, well, I'll show you some scary fish. And then he did. But I guess that wraps up Malignant. Uh, so a recommend from both of us. Uh, it is a... It is a journey of a film. You will go places. You will see things. You will experience feelings and emotions <laughs> of various kinds. And uh, and at the end, if if you enjoy sort of being taken on a little roller coaster of a film, um, I I think you'll wind up liking it. Like I said, it's it's just goofy enough to be endearing at the end of the day. So any other thoughts? Uh, see this movie. It is a spectacle. <laughs> yes, a horror spectacle, which is not a thing you can say we've gotten a lot of in the last 10 years or so. Um, and if we have, they've been from James Wan. So at least we're keeping the trend going. <laughs> James Wan is our horror spectacle man. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess Spiral tried for that, but uh, didn't, didn't really... Uh, and materialize uh we talked about that film a little bit but uh lots of twisty bones in that one i don't think you're gonna want to yeah no, no. i mean not for me not for me i'm gonna avoid that no no twisty bones we want it's my one rule skulls. we want splitty skulls those are fine split your skull open let a tiny baby face come out that's good uh twisty bones not so much where i draw the line i have so to have standards the line, the line must be drawn here yeah. This far, no further. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, go check out *Malignant*. We we think you'll probably have a pretty good time, uh, especially if you've already got HBO Max. It's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, definitely check it out before it gets pulled from the service for its thirty days or whatever after the the, the premiere window or whatever. Um, but yeah, definitely a, a, a fun experience. 
All right. So if uh, people disagree with us about Malignant and they want to find you online to let you know all about it, where can that happen? Uh, please contact me at Twitter at Baskinator. Um, I would love to argue with you about movies. Yes, very much so. It's so fun. Uh, similarly, I can be found at T Baskin on Twitter, or if you want to get both of us, that's Phil, uh, FP Theater on Twitter. And then if you want to send us a longer rant or uh, get in touch, you can always contact failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, but thanks for listening. We uh, appreciate you uh, checking back in after our hiatus. We will be back to our regular schedule moving forward. And that means we'll be back next week with another film that may or may not be worth your time. Is it a failure piece? Is it not? We'll figure it out together. See you then. Bye bye.